This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, we've got Philip Carey with us. We're talking about Nicene Creed, and I'm a little hoarse, so you're going to have to forgive me. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys, stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. We got the chance to talk about a cool book today, uh, giving commentary on the Nicene Creed. Uh if you don't know, Philip didn't write it. If, if you're new to this conversation and you think Philip wrote the Nicene Creed, you are going to need to watch the rest of this video. Uh, but here's a little good book uh, of his commentary on the Nicene Creed. It may be one of the prettiest books I've bought in a long time. I say bought. <laughs> uh, I get these books sent to me. So uh, anyway, uh, all that to say, I'm really excited about today's program. We love church history here. We love the creeds. Uh, and we're excited to talk about all this uh, with Philip. But before we dive into the subject, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. So if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description to do t- so. You can do a one-time gift on PayPal or a, a reoccurring gift there on Patreon. So it's five bucks a month. You'll get extra content there on Patreon. Uh, and additionally, if you're watching, uh, there's a bit of a bandwagon thing going on right now where people are subscribing to the channel. We just hit 100,000 subscribers. You can just go ahead and jump onto that bandwagon if you'd like. Uh, if you like the video, hit the like button. If you disliked it, hit that dislike button twice. And without further ado, uh, here is my team. I got with me today, I got Philip. Uh, I'd like to introduce him here in a moment. But before I do that, Michael, how are you? I guess is that we got to figure out like a solid question I mean, I almost I got, every time. I make it up as I go. I, I almost got used to being in the driver's seat last week with you all being at the water park and all for like five straight days. No, uh, Josh was on vacation. He gave me a hard time for saying he's at the water park. He's like, why did you just <laughs> tell him I was on vacation? You made it sound like I just want to be at the show. But Josh, I was just thinking about how you, you thought uh, that, that Phil's book was just so beautiful. You can hold that up for us again, Josh. Just oh, sure. show us that video or that uh, book. That's the book about the Nicene Creed Very by crazy. Philip Carey. Uh, but Josh, I just wanted to ask: Have you ever read this book before? You ever uh, read this the, one? The, <laughs> oh wait, is that is that this? the Passion Translation, Michael? That's your favorite translation, <laughs> no. isn't it? No, is it's it? the English Standard Version, which is uh, the, the best. The extra snobby version. Do that. So, uh, uh, anyway, just trying, guys, I'm just trying to help Josh out, get him, you know, let me, reading. Hey, I like the ESV called. too. Yeah. This is, this is my one upsmanship. This is a handmade Bible by uh, Humble Lamb Publishing that I'm going to be reviewing pretty soon. Uh, so, that's that's my one upsmanship, Michael. Uh, look, at, look at this. Okay. Look at this. Look at, it's got wow. Jesus in the. Oh, oh my gosh, dude. Dude, that is that's like when you hold up a dollar bill and you see like secret things like yeah, it's like extra. That's, anyway, without okay. further ado, let's introduce Gosh, our audience. Why do you always Philip? have to one up me, bro? No, <laughs> Philip, so, tell okay, us about Phil. yourself and your really impressive books in the background that are pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I like pretty books. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, tell us about yourself yeah. and your ministry for people who aren't familiar. 
Well, um, yeah, actually, uh, my day job is to be a philosophy professor, but I write books on theology. Uh, I kind of cheat. Um, I also edit a theology journal called Pro Ecclesia, which is uh, Latin for, for the church. So, you know, theologians are sometimes working for other theologians and professors and academics, but uh, the, the academic journal I edit is not for academics. It's for um, for the church. So I do a lot of theology, uh, which means I cheat all the time because I'm supposed to be teaching philosophy. But there's all sorts of philosophy that's really theology and some theology that's actually philosophy. So I feel OK. It's, it's, um, I teach at Eastern University outside of um, Philadelphia, and I've been teaching there for 25 years. And I have great colleagues and wonderful students. And it's been a blessing for, for many decades now in my life. Fantastic. Well, Maybe tell us a little about the book. Um, it's a fantastic book. You're writing about the creed. Why Why a philosophy guy writing about some piece of historic theology? Uh, g- give me the insight of what motivated you to do that. Oh, well, yeah. I, I don't really think of it as historical theology. I think of it as my faith. Um, yeah. um, the, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it's called the Nicene faith. And it's really mm-hmm. a summary of the one, you know, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's a summary of the gospel. Um, I teach a, a Western Civ course for honors students every year. And every year we start out by, by looking at the Nicene Creed. I, I teach at a Christian college and there's all these Christian students who would like to know, you know, what Christians believe. And, and it's odd, you know, you go to a lot of churches where, where you don't get taught what Christians believe. You kind of assume that everybody knows what, what they're supposed to believe. The Nicene Creed is a summary of the gospel about who God is, who Christ is, what God has done in Christ for our salvation, um, why it is we worship a man, right? Which is a really astonishing thing to do, right? Christians worship a man. How is that not idolatry? Well, the Nicene Creed explains how it's not idolatry. And it's, it's, it's central to the Christian faith because Christians have been worshiping this man, Jesus, as if he's sitting on the throne at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, since, well, for, since as long as there've been Christians. Uh, what do we think we're doing? Well, the Nicene Creed is a way of saying that. And, and so my students love to learn this because they want to know what they're doing when they're believing what Christians believe. Praise God. Okay, so your, your average evangelical church, at least in our country, in America, is not reciting the Nicene Creed right. every Sunday. And uh, well, there's not time for that. We have we have you know announcements. And, uh, yeah, there's not time for the Christian faith. We got to do yeah, more relevant. We, we don't really have time for that kind of stuff. So, uh, well, but there's there's also kind of in the background. You have people aren't saying this as much today, although they do they do still say it. But there was a big push with the fundamentalists in the early 20th century of like no creed but the Bible and this sort of language. It's kind of like, well, why should I trust what a some church fathers said many centuries ago and not just trust what the Bible says and go to the horse's mouth. I mean, so how do you, how should we kind of process these things as, as Christians? Why has the creed gone missing? Why, uh, yeah. you know, as, as people who profess sola scripture or the scripture alone, the scripture alone, yeah. why should we, why should we go to a creed? Well, that's funny. I mean, you know, John Calvin, who's at the, the, the foundation of the Reformed tradition, is scathing about people who don't want to recite the creed. Um, it's kind of funny that way. Um, you're thinking, you know, why not uh, give a summary of the faith in words that help you understand scripture? What's the problem with that? Um, and in fact, 
nearly every word in the Nicene Creed comes straight out of Scripture. It is a summary of the gospel. It says things that the gospel says, like, you know, uh, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Amen. He will come again in glory and his kingdom will have no end. Now, that's biblical, right? So what the creed is doing is it's summarizing the biblical gospel. It's summarizing the fundamental things that the biblical gospel says about who God is and about who Jesus Christ is. And that's a really useful thing to have, especially when you put it together in one little package and you can say it all in about a minute and a half. You can summarize what it is you believe as a Christian and why it is, for instance, that you have the, the audacity to join other people in worshiping a man sitting on the throne of God. Now, if the Nicene Creed isn't true, then Christians are idolaters, right? We need to understand what are we doing when we worship a man as if he's sitting on the throne of God? What are we saying? Well, the Nicene Creed says it in brief. Um, and then of course, when you unpack the Nicene Creed, you need the whole Bible to do that. And that's great, um, but it's good to have a, a summary. Um, the other thing that's lovely about the Nicene Creed, I think, is that it doesn't tell us about ourselves except as part of the story of God. It doesn't tell us, oh, here's what you have to do to get saved. It tells us, here's what God has done to save you. you know, it says, for us and for it's our salvation. Yeah, the gospel is about what God does, not, what, not mm -hmm. about what we do, right? Now, what God does is what he does for us. So we're part of the story. But um, the story is not all about us. It's about God and what he does. Uh, and that's why it's good news. And the creed is, is all about that. It's all about, um, at the center of it, what God does by sending his son for us and for our salvation. That's a quote, quote from the creed, right? For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, became incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. And then he was crucified for us also under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death, was buried. On the third day, he rose again. Does this sound like it's different from the Bible to you, right? Um, and above all, Right? Most fundamentally, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's where Jesus is right now, yeah. right? Sitting at the right hand of God, the Father, interceding for us. And we await his coming in glory and his kingdom that will have no end. Now, if you object to saying that in church, then yes, you, you should object to the creed. But if you really like saying that, if that sounds like music to your ears, then, yeah, you want the creed. Um, it's, it's music for Christians ears. Yeah. So good. Hey, so I, I've got a, I've got a question about this. So we're, we're, we've talked about, um, uh, okay. Why'd you write a book on the creed? Uh, Michael asked the question, you know, why even consider a creed, no creed, but the Bible, that kind of thing. There are people watching 10 minutes in that have stuck in and they're like, I don't know what this thing is. Can you give us a 40,000 foot <laughs> overview of like, what, what is the creed in its relation to church history? Where did it come from? Why do we have it? Um, right. is it, I understand that you're saying, like you said, and I agree and affirm, it is not different than scripture. It's not saying something different than scripture, but we're also not saying it is scripture. Like we're not saying that it is infallible. Well, actually it inspired, is. But 95% of, of it simply is scripture. It is right? scripture, right. There's it's like the one word, scripture. like homoousios, right? The rest of it's all, all Bible words. There's one word in this um, in this creed that isn't in scripture. One word, homoousios, right? right? The rest of it is all pretty much straight out of scripture. It's plagiarism, right? <laughs> it's plagiarism um, at its best. Right. I mean, if you're going to plagiarize, plagiarize God, right? Right. If, right. if you object to plagiarizing the Bible, then you should. You Man, should this guy's a good writer. Right. 
So, yeah, what's going on? Um, what happens is, um, you know, uh, Christians have to say words that are come out of their own mouths. And sometimes what comes out of their own mouths are not just quotations from the Bible. Um, you know, we preach, we, we, write, we sing hymns and things. Um, and then we do this really strange and wonderful thing. We baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So uh, as, for as long as we know, um, people who have been baptized would confess the faith as they were baptized. And always they would confess the faith in three parts. Guess what three parts? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Three parts to confession. And when you put a baptismal confession into writing, uh, what you've got is a creed, right? So the earliest written version of a baptismal confession we have uh, originated in the church. In It became, with a few modifications, what is now called the Apostles' Creed, because the early church said, yeah, that goes back to the teaching of the apostles right there in Holy Scripture. And that became the first really great creed of the, of the Christian tradition. Then uh, about a century and a half later, there was a crisis in the church in Alexandria. And there was this guy teaching um, that, uh, that Jesus came from the Father, which meant once there was, there was a time when he didn't exist, right? So, this, mm-hmm. so here you have the church in about three, 320 or so in Alexandria in Egypt, and there's this uh, presbyter or elder in the church saying, well, you know, the, the eternal, the son of God comes from the father, right? Which means there was once when he was not, right? Mic drop, crunch, kapow, right? If there was once when he was not, and we're worshiping this son of God, then we are worshiping what is not truly and really and fully God. And the folks at Alexandria were horrified. There was a scandal. And um, eventually you had, uh, in 325, this Council of Nicaea, which is um, about, what, 50 miles or so as the crow flies from Constantinople. It's in, it's in um, what's now Turkey. And they said, look, um, this notion that there was once when he was not, this notion that, that the eternal son of God is a creature, that he came out of nothing, that that, that's a different gospel. Let it be a curse. Let it be anathema. Remember how Paul says in the Galatians, uh, in the letter to the Galatians, if someone teaches you a different gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. So they, they cursed this teaching and they said, okay, here is what we, what we teach. And what they did is they took a local baptismal creed, we don't know from exactly where, and then they added a few words to, they added a few words to make sure to, to eliminate this teaching, which says that, that Jesus Christ isn't really fully and truly God. So the flip side of it is, if you were to ask a Christian, are you really saying that Jesus is God? You know, like Just like God the Father, like he created heaven and earth? This man is the creator of heaven and earth? As if there's the man on the cross is God? As if the baby in, in Mary's womb is God so that Mary is the mother of God? Are you really saying all that? And the Nicene Creed says emphatically, Yes, the baby in Mary's womb is God. The man on the cross is God. The man whom we worship sitting at the right hand of God the Father is God, true God and true man. Um, and again, that the, the creed summarizes that in beautiful language that is I always find encouraging. And it, it's, 
it tells us what it is that we Christians are confessing. And which it's stunning to me, my students often really, <laughs> I can press them, Christian, are you really saying that Jesus is God? And they're not sure. Now, if you know the Nicene Creed, you'll say, yes, absolutely. He's God in exactly the same way that God the Father is. He's not less than God the Father. He is not a different God from God the Father. And he's also the baby in Mary's womb. And it's wonderful to be able to know that that's the content of the Christian faith that you were baptized in. And that is the, it's, it's the name and the reality of the God in whose life you live. Yeah. Amen. Well, um, Phil, I wonder if you could talk to us about the Nicene Creed in relation to other creeds. Uh, uh-huh. You know, the, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Apostles' Creed, even the Athanasian Creed, which I love the Athanasian Creed, but <laughs> never knows that one. Anyway, yeah. but so we have these different creeds and there would be some who say, you know, Phil, like, you just described a historical scenario. So Arius right. rises right. up, begins teaching heresy about the nature of the sun, that there was a time when the sun was not, etc. So the Nicene Creed is like this sort of time-capsuled theological uh, construct that that maybe we should take a more expansive approach and cite this creed from that time and that creed from that time and that creed, Mm -hmm. you know, even back to first Corinthians 15, where they seem to have a very early creed that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was day, uh, or that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, et cetera. A lot of people say that was an early creed. Oh, that's that's right there in the Nicene Creed. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So, so So, so, so let's think about this. So, so Paul gives us this time capsule back in first Corinthians 15, but that's for, you know, way back in the first century. That's not relevant to our day today, is it? Or is it? Right. Right. It, for sure it is. Does it really matter that Jesus rose all that way a long time ago? I mean, it's just something that just some historical event, right? Or is it what we believe and base our whole lives on? And by the way, where is Jesus right now? If you know the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, you know where Jesus is right now. Right? He's mm-hmm. sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's just that's not just a historical construct. That's who Jesus is. Right. And, you know, unless you think the Christian faith is irrelevant, you're not going to think the Nicene Creed right. is irrelevant. OK, so so what I hear you saying is, well, yes, Michael, there were some historical developments that gave yeah, yeah. rise to the composition of the Nicene Creed. That's right. However, this is this is just Bible and we can't discount it either just because it's history. But maybe now tackle the second part of that. Uh, okay. which, which is the the other creeds that I named Athanasian, yeah. Cal, uh, uh, Chalcedonian, uh, right. apostles. It's often called the Talk to us about these creeds, or right. maybe any other creed you want to mention, and why <laughs> right. the Nicene stands out to you. Oh, why does the Nicene stand out to me? Um, right, the Nicene Creed stands out because it really is about the fundamental identity of Jesus Christ. Now, like every creed, it it has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Apostles' Creed has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is earlier than the Nicene Creed, doesn't say a lot about the divinity of Christ. That was the issue that Arius raised. So one of the things that does happen historically is that the heretics come along and they raise questions that Christians have to answer. Like, again, in in the third century or rather fourth century, uh, the Council of Nicaea, the question is, what are we doing when we worship this man? How is that not idolatry? Right? And the Nicene Creed has an answer to that. But that's still the answer to why what we're doing today is not idolatry. 
right? We worship this man, right? Uh, but, but he died a long time ago. What's going on when we worship this man? Well, the Nicene Creed answers that. Then you have uh, uh, Chalcedon, which um, is a council that happens, what, about uh, a century and, well, 125 years or so after Nicaea. Um, in Chalcedon, um, there's, there's a lot of thinking about um, who Jesus is as both true God and true man. Although, by the way, the, 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 the formula of Chalcedon denies that it's a creed, right? The, the, the church fathers at Chalcedon said, we're not making a new creed. Right? They said, here's the creed of Nicaea. Here's the, the expansion of the creed of Nicaea in Constantinople. And we're not giving a new creed, right? They actually curse people who give a new creed. So no, there's not a new creed. And in fact, it's really just an exegesis of the Nicene Creed, um, which I can tell you about a little bit. Then along comes uh, the so-called so Athanasian Creed, which is also not a creed. Uh, and it's also not by Athanasius. <laughs> it's a mm -hmm. it's a confession of faith, um, probably inspired mainly by Augustine, who was the, the greatest uh, theologian of the Trinity in the Western Latin speaking church. And that's really what it does is it, it summarizes Augustine's um, doctrine of the Trinity. It says things like the father is omnipotent and the son is omnipotent and the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, but there aren't three omnipotents. There's only one omnipotence. The father is God. The son is God. The Holy Spirit is God, but there's not three God, just one God. Um, that's, that's a really good statement and it needs to be said, but it's already implicit in the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed's already clear. There's only one God. And um, Chalcedon is simply uh, unpacking something that the Nicene Creed already does, which is wonderful. Um, here's something that's, that's useful to think about. Is it uh, good Protestant orthodoxy to say that Mary is the mother of God? Well, if you believe the Nicene Creed, it's, it's very clear yes. what the answer is. John Calvin, for instance, who's about as Protestant as they come, very clearly affirms, of course, Mary's the mother of God. Who do you think is in her womb? Well, it's yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And is Jesus truly and really God? You bet, right? Um, the way that the Nicene Creed actually spells this out, and this is what Chalcedon is actually putting its finger on, is it points out that there's, there's two births of the Son of God. This is language from uh, Cyril of Alexandria. Two births of the Son of God. One is in eternity, right, where yeah. the Son of God is eternally begotten of the Father, begotten from the Father before all worlds and all time. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created. So that's his divine identity, which originates with the Father. Then you have his birth from his mother, right, um, where he gets his humanity. He takes flesh from the virgin, says, says uh, Chalcedon. Um, he is um, uh, for us and for our salvation. He comes down from, that, from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's born of the Virgin Mary and becomes human. So he has a birth in eternity and a birth in time. In eternity, he's born from the Father, originates from the Father as God, tr just as truly God as the Father. In time, he is born from Mary, just as truly human as Mary is. Um, and so that's how he is both truly God and truly man. And then Chalcedon basically spells that all out. And then it makes it very clear that we're talking about one person, the same person. This is actually the important thing in Chalcedon. The same person who's eternally begotten of the Father is the same person who was born of Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate, is raised from the dead and sits at God's right hand. The same one. Right. It's actually just right there in the grammar. Right. It's all one clause where the same grammatical subject 
is born from the Father, born from Mary, raised from the dead, sits at God's right hand, is crucified, etc. All all happens at the same one, same person. Uh, you don't even need the word. The Nicene Creed doesn't use that word. Just the same one, the same grammatical subject does all those things. Now we know the story of who God is, the story of who the Son of God is, and what He did for us. Right, and again. This is not just, you know, history. This is who Jesus is to this day. This is who we expect him to be when he comes again in glory. This is who he is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's good. So we, we've got this um, part of the, this, you know, so we, what we have right now is the um, Nicene, I want to say cosmopolitan, but that's not the right word. Uh, Constantinople. Constantinopolitan. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, ice cream. You know, we've got we've got this. Uh, so the original Nicene Creed, for those you're watching, was written in 325. Later, updated uh, in 381, and there was right. addition to it talking about the Holy Spirit, and that kind of tags on to this question that Tracy has. Uh, he wants to know, you know, why do you think? Oh, oh not why, so little about the creed. Oops, that was not his question. And the first one he asked was actually, why is there so little in the creed about the Holy Spirit? And I think That's I might have clicked said. the wrong one. Um, regardless, that was his primary question was, why is there so little in the creed about the Holy Spirit? Um, I've got some interesting thoughts about that, but I bet you share those thoughts. So I'll let you answer it since we're interviewing you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, um, first and foremost, yeah, there's a whole lot more in the updated version of the creed in Constantinople in 381 than there is in the Creed of Nicaea in 325. There's a, a complicated history there, but essentially what happens is is the Council of Nicaea in 325 produces this shortened version of a baptismal creed uh, with some additions to, to condemn the teaching of Arius that there was once when he was not. And it, it actually stopped right with the words, and in the Holy Spirit, period. Right. So I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And it says nothing about the Holy Spirit other than uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit. So uh, Fast forward about half a century, and in 381, Constantinople, they have this creed where they say a lot more about the Holy Spirit. Um, now, um, it turns out that the, the, what's said about Jesus is longer than what's said about the Father. In fact, the shortest part of the creed, um, in, in all the creeds really, is, is the part about the Father. That's partly because the part about God the Father is not controversial. There's no need to argue about it because nobody's disagreeing about it. Um, and in 325, there wasn't much disagreement about the Holy Spirit. By the time we get to by the time we get to 381, there was a disagreement about the Holy Spirit, and that's why much more is said about that in the in the what you call and rightly so the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, which is the, the the sort of updating of the Nicene Creed that happens in in Constantinople in 381. They add a lot about the Holy Spirit. Um, that he proceeds from the Father, that he speaks through the prophets, that um, uh, that there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, so um, also he's mentioned first in the creed, the Holy Spirit is, when um, the eternal Son descends from heaven and becomes incarnate from the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. So that's where he first appears. Um the point being that what we have to say about Jesus Christ is going to take more time and more space than what we say about God the Father. I mean, heaven's sakes, pagans believe in God the Father. Uh, the, the, the phrase God the Father appears all over the place in pagan literature. Um, in, in Virgil's Aeneid, Jupiter is, is God the Father. So, you know, well, of course, 
Christians have to say something different about God the Father than pagans do, but they don't say something different about God the Father than Jews do, right? Jews and Christians believe in, in the same God the Father. But Jesus Christ, wow, what's going on when we say that this, this baby in, in Mary's womb is God. What's going on when we say that this man on the cross is God? You're going to have to say a fair amount in order to make sense of that. Whereas the Holy Spirit is, again, not particularly hard or not particularly controversial, right? The phrase Holy Spirit appears in scripture. Um, it appears in Jewish literature. Um, it, we have the Spirit of the Lord showing up all over the Bible. Um, and the only question is, do we worship the Holy Spirit the same way we worship God the Father and God the Son? And um, the, the creed is very clear. Yes, he's with the Father and the Son. He is worshipped and glorified. Um, and that means that he's you know, really the same God as God the Father and God the Son. Otherwise, we wouldn't be worshipping him. And that's the important thing. Um, it's, it's really a matter uh, of identity. That's, that's what the creed is going on about. Who is God the Father? Who is God the Son? Who is the God the Holy Spirit? And what we say about the identity of the Spirit is can, can be said fairly briefly because uh, once you get the point that the Holy Spirit is God, then the, the rest of it's fairly fairly straightforward. Okay. Well, as we're kind of diving into the different persons of the Trinity, talk to us about why the Father is called God in the Creed. Right but Jesus yeah. called Lord in the creed because you talked about right. some of the historical background is trying to prove the deity of Christ. So some would argue, well, if you called him God, that could have been a little simpler because Lord could be like lowercase L my Lord, you know? <laughs> so, so why didn't they call Jesus God also in the Nicene Creed? Oh, well, because you had to call him God in a Jewish way in order to make clear what, what you're talking about. I mean, Caesar was God for the pagans, right? And the angels are God's small g, even in the Bible, right? Um, the Lord in, in the Psalms is a great king above all gods, which is to say he's king above the angels. He's the God of gods, which is to say he's the God over the angels. So to say that Jesus is God is not yet to distinguish him from angels or a pagan god or something. So that really doesn't help. Right. If you really want to say that Jesus is the one true living God, you're going to have to say Jesus is Lord because that's the name of the God of Israel. And that's what makes, um, well, it's basically a Jewish way of saying that Jesus is really and truly and fully and holy and entirely God, the same way God the Father is. Um, by the way, this is one more way that the creed is utterly biblical. Uh, it actually, um, the whole creed has, has a backbone that stems from, First uh, Corinthians eight six, where Paul says, um, actually starting at eight five, um, there are many so called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, but for us there is one God, the Father. Now there's where the creed comes from. Well, I believe in one God, the Father. Right? The, the creed is quoting Paul right here. Just just in case you you doubt that the creed is biblical. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So if you want to say, you know, why is this stuff about Jesus being Lord? Well, the reason why is it's, it's there in the Bible, and there's a reason why it's in the Bible. You remember that Paul says in Romans 10, Right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Right? Jesus is Lord is evidently the earliest and most fundamental Christian confession of all. 
Jesus is Lord, right? Now, why? Right? Because it's not just Jesus is Lord or boss or master or something, right? Um, and you can tell because later on in Romans 10, just a few verses later, Paul quotes um, scripture, the Old Testament, saying, this is, I think, the uh, book of Joel, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what's this name Lord, right? Oddly enough, the name Lord is not really, it's, it's a way of not saying the name. Uh, we speak of the Lord God of Israel. And in, in Isaiah, you can read, you know, I am the Lord, that is my name, right? Now, oddly enough, what's happening is that, is that scripture, scripture translations are not giving you the name because the name of the Lord is not spoken by Jews, right? Uh, if you were to visit a Jewish synagogue and they come to the name of God, they don't say the name of God. They never say the name of God. It's too sacred to say. So instead they say Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord. And, and this is followed by most biblical translators, right? And rightly so. Um, goes all the way back to the ancient Greek translation of, of the Old Testament. Uh, instead of saying the name of God, you say Lord. So when you say Jesus is Lord, and then whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, as Paul quotes Joel, you know what he's saying? He's saying you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, and you're calling upon the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So just as Jesus, this man, is sitting on the throne of God at the right hand of the Father, he also has the name of God. The name of the Lord God of Israel, which Jews never say, and which I'm not saying, and Paul never says, right? That name, the name of the one true God of, who created heavens and earth, who has existed before all time, that name rightly belongs to the man Jesus. That's what we're saying when we say Jesus is Lord. That's why the Bible says it, and that's why the creed says it. It's the Jewish way of saying Jesus is really and truly God, not just an angel, not just a pagan God, not just like Caesar, right? Jesus is as much God as you, as you can possibly get. He's because the name of the Lord God of Israel rightly belongs to him, and he rightly sits on the throne uh, of heaven next to God the Father. Uh, and that's that's why we say Jesus is Lord. It's it's the Jewish way of saying Jesus is God. That's really interesting to me because I and and I'm curious if this is an intentional framing of pushback because. And, and maybe I'm, I'm only hearing this from uh, my own personal circles, and, and maybe I haven't gathered it as much from scholarly work. But I, but I feel as if I've heard quite a bit that after the Council of Nicaea, that there was an intentional removal of Jewishness from Christianity. Like I've heard that as kind of a a mythos-like system. And maybe you're intentionally, uh, maybe I'm sensing you intentionally pushing back on that. Like, nope, that's not oh. what's happening. In fact, the creed is is very, very Jewish. Um, am, am I hearing you right in that, that the, the Nicene Creed isn't trying to strip away the Hebraic roots, if you will, of our Christian faith? Uh, yeah, um, right. There is a, a, a form of scholarship which most scholars nowadays no longer accept, which says, oh, along came these Greek speakers and they stripped away all the Jewishness of, of the Bible and, and substituted Greek philosophy. Um, in that crude form, the, the, the thesis is called the Hellenist, uh, the Hellenizing thesis, right? The, the, the Hellenizing means Greekizing, right? Uh, it all becomes Greek. Well, th that's that's just a mistake, right? <laughs> um, the New Testament's already Greek. Um, Paul is already writing in Greek. Um, what's new and what happens that's, I think, terribly important 
and you can see it already in, in, in the New Testament, there's all these non-Jews, all these Gentiles who are believing the gospel. And, and this was something that a whole lot of, of early Christians didn't expect because, you know, the first Christians, they're the apostles, they're all Jewish. And um, it looks like this was going to be a Jewish renewal movement. You've got 12 apostles for the 12 sons of Jacob. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all this uh, renewal of Israel, the kingdom of God coming uh, to, to return to Jerusalem. Um, and yet then all of a sudden you get all these Gentiles, right, who don't even have to be circumcised and convert to Judaism. And they're accepted into the Christian church. Paul really made sure of that, right? You, you don't have to circumcise these people. These are Gentiles. They remain Gentiles. They don't have to become Jews, which means as the, the, the years go on and the centuries go on, more and more of the church is, is made up of Gentiles who don't understand Judaism as well as Jews do. Um, there's a whole loss of what I'll call um, the lore of ancient Judaism. Um, these aren't Jews. They don't know what first century Judaism was like. They miss a whole lot of what was going on in the Gospels because they're not Jews and don't understand how Judaism works. So one of the things that happens is, is you get these um, philosophical Greeks saying, oh, well, you know, if, if uh, the Son of God originates from the Father, he must be later than the Father, so there must have been once when he was not. Um, and if you were Jewish enough to know what it means to when you say Jesus is Lord, you would say, of course not. Jesus is the Lord God of Israel. He's sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. There was never such a thing as, as one time when he was not. But you'd have to be Jewish to know that. And by the time of the Nicene Creed, the church is overwhelmingly Gentile. Right? It's not the Gentiles' fault that they're Gentiles. Right? It's not the Gentiles' fault that they didn't grow up Jewish. But they're bringing Greek forms of thought, they're bringing Greek philosophy, Greek education, and they don't know their Judaism as well as Jews do. So um, they're not nearly as sensitive to the name Lord as Jews are, right? When you say Lord or Adonai or Hashem, right? Um, Jews know what you're talking about, right? And by the way, Christians shouldn't try to say the actual name of God. I think when when Jesus' disciples ask how to pray, you know, what, what name should we use? He says, wait, say our Father. So we avoid saying the name, but by the time you get to the fourth century, Gentiles don't understand that. They don't know why that is. And so they need some other way of saying that Jesus is just as truly God as God the Father is. And the way they say that is by throwing the one new word into the creed that isn't in the Bible. This word homoousios, which you've mentioned before, it means that um, the son is of the same being or essence as God the Father. That, that's what it's saying, uh, that the son is of one essence with the Father, which is to say everything that essentially makes God God belongs to Jesus just as much as to the Father and belongs just as much to the Holy Spirit. Um, and that, that's not because there's a bunch of Gentiles trying to strip away the Judaism. It's a bunch of Gentiles who don't know enough about Judaism to, to know how to... to to sort of resonate and how shocking it is when you say that Jesus is Lord and he sits at the right hand of God the Father and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess and, conf and confess that Jesus is Lord. I mean, this is an early Christian hymn that Paul quotes in, in Philippians 2 and it must have just shocked the heck out of all these Jewish Christians. Um, you know, you're saying that the name of the Lord belongs to Jesus, that he sits on the throne of God? 
Yes. And one, another way of saying the same thing is to say that he is homoousios of one essence with the father. It's a Gentile way of saying what Jews could say by saying Jesus is Lord. Hmm. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, I want to hear your thoughts on the filioque clause. And <laughs> okay. some of our viewers, they're going to be like the filio what? So we're going to need you to define that. But I think to, to kind of couch this question, you said, hey, with the exception of the one word homoousios, uh, that, that was introduced, everything else comes from the scripture. But if that's true, why is there a division over the Nicene Creed between Eastern and Western church? It comes down to this filioque clause. So uh, if you could explain what it is right. and the history of the split right. over this clause. Right. And your so, if you don't, so if you don't recite the Nicene Creed every Sunday, then, then this may not be an issue for you. But in fact, you're already on, on the Western side of this divide between West and East. Um, what happened is, is, uh, is this. Um, when the Nicene Creed was written, it was uh, written in Greek. It was a Greek confession of faith used in baptisms and so on. And um, it was translated ra rather early into Latin because in, within the Roman Empire, the, the, the great division within the empire was between the Greek-speaking part of the empire in the east and the Latin-speaking empire in the west. So if you're in Spain, you're speaking Latin when you're doing government business. If you're in uh, Israel or Syria, you're speaking Greek when you do government business. Um, so the, the, the Nicene Creed originates in the east in Greek, um, but they're saying it in Latin translation very early on. And then somewhere around probably the sixth century in Spain, where they speak Latin, they started adding this little clause filioque, which is Latin for and from the Son. They add it in the, the part about the Holy Spirit, where they're saying the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and then the Latin church adds, and from the Son. Now, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father is right there in John 15, 26, in the, the Last Supper discourse. Jesus says, quite simply, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Um, the Bible does not explicitly say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. But uh, it does say explicitly that the Son sends the Spirit. That, that's one of the things that Peter teaches on in his sermon on Pentecost. But um, the, the, the business about proceeding from the Father is about where the Holy Spirit originates. The eternal Son of God is begotten from the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. That's what the, the original Nicene Creed says. Then, the, whole, then the, the Western Church adds this bit, and from the Son. There's reasons why the Western Church liked this that go back to the theology of Augustine, which we can talk about, but it gets complicated. Um, the crucial question is, does it belong in the creed? Well, um, on this point, I think the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox churches, originating, going back to the you know the Greek-speaking part of the Roman Empire, I think they win on points. That is to say, on pr procedural grounds, the Latin-speaking Western Church should not have added this phrase to the creed without the approval of the rest of the church. And that's that's why Eastern Orthodox will get you know quite steamed up about this, right? Are you saying that we Pope folks in the East are not you know don't really have the true faith because what we don't say this this business about filioque and from the Son, this double procession, right? 
proceeding from the father and the son. And um, I think they're right. Uh, we shouldn't be adding something to the creed without the agreement of the whole church. Now, sometimes Eastern Orthodox will get so angry that they'll accuse the West of adding something heretical or something. Well, no, I don't think it's heretical. It's, uh, it's a theological viewpoint that um, is likely to be true. And in fact, given, I think, a modest interpretation, it's something that the, that the Eastern Orthodox themselves are willing to say. Uh, you ask the Eastern Orthodox, and they're willing to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. And, and you know, so that, that kind of two-step process. Um, and if that's what we mean by saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, then the Eastern Orthodox agree. So in any case, when people in the West add this bit to the creed and say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, they're not speaking heresy. So we got like a billion Christians or so saying this every Sunday. So it's a good thing they're not saying heresy. But on procedural grounds, they really shouldn't be adding this to the creed. So I myself, knowing the history about this, I, um, I don't actually say that phrase in the creed when I recite the creed every Sunday. Uh, I just say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. But I don't think it's heresy if you add that phrase. And uh, crucially, I don't think um, the flip side is I don't think the Western church, the Latin speaking church, from which we get both Catholics and Protestants, should insist on having this in the creed in a way that excludes the Eastern Orthodox because that divides the church and that's wrong. Right. So we ought to just admit we goofed. We shouldn't have put that in the creed. We're not we're not heretics, but we shouldn't put it in the creed. So if, if you really want us to take us out of take this out of the creed, let's take it out of the creed. Um, it shouldn't be a, a cause of division. So if, if I was going to surmise, like condense what you just said, um, yeah. theologically, we agree. Correct. The spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Not, not necessarily that you said that as explicitly, but like even if we use the con, the, the concession of language of. Um, from the Father through the Son, right? Like right. proceeds from the Father and the Son in that way even. We can see those theological grounds. We still agree, yeah. I think all three of us, that it was outside of the kind of church polity that was that was agreed right. upon by the universal church. If we're going to say the uni this is the universal Christian faith, right. it should be right. decided by the universal Christian church. Exactly. So like as, as Protestants, we're looking at the East and we're going, hey, you guys were protesting papal authority before it was cool. Like, way to go. <laughs> you know, like, like you're, you you kind of came in and said, like, hey, this is the way that we're going to do it. And it's like, uh, I don't think you get to do that. Like, so yeah, th they're yep. in that sense, some of the earliest Protestants. So I think that the, the Protestants, if anything, should be able to get behind that yeah, concept yeah. more than anyone. It's like, OK, theologically, they might be right, but they're overreaching in their authority here. Um, and I'm actually I'm sensitive to that point now. Now, this is what I, I'd have, I have to have to ask you. Um, is a personal point of pastoral discipleship. I'm going to request of you. My church recites the Western Creed. We we uh -huh. we recite from the Father and the Son. My kids have memorized the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. If I were to, after you know six months, eight months of pastoring here, removed and the Son, I'd have to go then and explain. Would it cause more confusion? How would you instruct people who currently use the filioque clause in their creed? Would you? encourage them to keep it in and and disciple their church uh, on, on means of conscience here? Would you encourage uh, them to maybe remove it as a way to be more inclusive of the universal Christian church? Like, how, how would you in, instruct and encourage those? Yeah, I think this would be a matter for, for actual serious preaching. Um, 
I'd start by, you know, looking at John 15, 26 and notice that Jesus says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and uh, talk about Jesus sending the Holy Spirit. Um, but I would do some instructing about the history of the Christian faith and how that binds uh, binds us with other Christians, right? Um, Jesus also prayed in the Last Supper discourse that we all might be one. Uh, and therefore, it is sin for us to remain in division, you know, divided from other Christians. Uh, if we can help it, we should not be divided from other Christians, because uh, that's tearing the body of Christ apart. Um, and the Western Church should not be tearing the body of Christ apart in this way. So that means it becomes part of our Christian obligation uh, in in honoring and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ that we don't make a cause of division. And I think um, really it is the Western Church's fault, right? Uh, the Western Church, which is both Catholic and Protestant. Uh, by the way, just to make things a bit more complicated, it wasn't the Pope who put it in there. It was a bunch of councils in Spain and then Charlemagne up in France in around 800. He was really big on the filioque. And Rome did not add it to the creed until probably somewhere around 1000 AD, right? So it wasn't the Pope that, that, that put it in there, although eventually he, he seems to have caved into Charlemagne and, and the, the emperors over there in, in among the Franks. So... Um, yeah, it was it was really a, a long process of tradition spreading from Spain for about five centuries, um, and it wasn't it was never part of an ecumenical council, a council of the worldwide church. So let's not divide the church. Uh, I, and I think what I would do if I was in kind of in your position is I would say let's let's preach about what it means to say in the creed that there is one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church that there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Um, that, that means that we have an obligation, a very sacred obligation, to be at one with our brothers and sisters in Christ as much as possible. Um, and this is something that's a barrier to unity. It is yeah. interesting to speak of the Pope again one more time. John Paul II would sometimes, when visiting with Orthodox um, uh, Christians, would recite the creed without the filioque. He was willing to go that far, basically treating it as a, as a kind of, of local option. Um, and thus it's optional among Roman Catholics to say this. So, yeah, we should go as far as we can to be re reunited with our brothers and sisters. And I think that's a matter we can preach on when we talk about the unity of the yeah. church. Okay. Well, speaking of the unity of the church and this Nicene Creed, which is supposed to unify us, but, you know, we went ahead and divided over the creed meant to unify us. Right. So, but on that, like the very end of it, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, yeah. as a Protestant, now I know what Catholic means. It means universal. Like this is yeah. the capital C church. It's not just right. your local congregation. It's not just the, right. uh, that little branch or denomination over there. This, this is the capital C church. We believe in the church. What yeah. a beautiful statement. However... Most people don't know that, <laughs> not in my <laughs> yeah. circles, right? So when they say, well, wait, 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 I believe in one holy, yeah, I, I believe that Roman Catholics exist, but why am I talking <laughs> about this in a creed? I mean, is this just something we just got to get better at educating people on? Uh, yeah. Would you be opposed to somebody changing? Because, I mean, words have meaning, and if they lose meaning, do we do we just need to, like, 
update a translation just like we changed the the KJV to the NKJV? Do we need to just say, like, we believe in one holy universal and apostolic church? Would you be opposed to such language yeah. shift there? Or no, no. I, I don't know. How should we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th this is partly a pedagogical issue about, about teaching, right? Um, so let me give you a parallel. I mean, remember... Um, uh, come thou, uh, come thou, fount of every blessing. Um, is it the third verse where here I raise my Ebenezer, right? And most people don't know what the heck that is, but it's it's actually we're going to raise it. We're going to raise it high, right? It, uh, it, my it, my charismatic brothers, they just interpret that themselves to mean shofar. <laughs> I'm bro, no, bro. In stone of help, and it's it's from a biblical story about how God helped Israel uh, reconquer its territory to a certain point, and then they raised a stone there and called it Ebenezer, uh, because that's how far the Lord helped them is to, is to that point. So, um, if you know your Bible and and you have an old translation like the King James, then you'll know what it means. So one of the things to do pedagogically, I think, um, I recommend this to pastors, is leave in all the old hard words and then explain what they mean. That's one of the things that preaching is for, right? Because after all, um, <laughs> I mean, the New Testament's written in Greek, and um, most people don't know Greek, but pastors really should learn some Greek so they can explain some of the Greek terms. And Hebrew too, right? For the Old Testament. We need people who know the old words, Hebrew, Greek, uh, 16th century English, Ebenezer's, um, and Catholic. Catholic is such an important word uh, in the history of the Christian tradition. If you're gonna understand what you read when you read Martin Luther or John Calvin or St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas, then you need to know what Catholic means. So why not leave that difficult word in there? And then when it, when it comes up in church, explain it, right? Uh, I think that's a great opportunity for preaching. Um, and then, you know, you get to sing it. You get to sing about the Ebenezer and then you know what it means and, and it becomes part of your heart. Um, uh, I, I actually learned the creed myself mainly by singing it, um, singing it in Latin. And fortunately I knew a little bit of Latin and yeah, you, you sing this stuff, it becomes part of your heart. And then these old, old words, which are the same words that uh, John Jewell and um, Queen Elizabeth said, right? Catholic, right? Or in Greek, Catholicos. So that's the same words that, uh, that Paul said, right? Um, isn't it wonderful to speak these same old words and begin to understand them? So I think that's that's a, a preaching opportunity that you shouldn't pass up. That's okay. that's that's good. I like that. Uh, and on that note, for those who are wanting to learn the creed in song form, I just commented the one that we use to teach our kids the creed. So my eight-year-old, my six-year-old, my five-year-old all have the creed memorized, um, which means if you're 30 and have never heard of it, you have the bandwidth to memorize it. I promise. Uh, just just yeah, learn yeah. the song. It'll be good. Uh, it'll be good for you and your Christian walk. Oh, there's all. There's a thousand ways to sing the creed, Mozart and Bach, and they all set it to music, Palestrina, right? Yeah. It's all good stuff. Well, I did not give Mozart or Bach. I gave a children's song. So you go, okay. go listen to those, those versions. <laughs> Philip is encouraging. Uh, for those of you who are watching and you're interested in learning more about the creed, you should go pick up uh, uh, Philip's book that I have here. I'm trying beautiful, to have it beautiful right book. here for uh, Lexham Press. Publish this. They make some of the prettiest books. You can go pick this up. Um, and check out more about the creed in here. Lots of explanations, thoughts, great stuff in this book. You can go check it out. 
Uh, and uh, we'll drop a link of that in the description of the video. And we're thankful for the guys at Lexum who sent this one over to us. So super thankful for that. Um, uh, Philip, do you have any kind of closing thoughts about the Creed? I know we've got to wrap up because Michael's going to go. And I think you might hop on with me for a short call for Patreon viewers. But do you have any kind of closing uh, surmising thoughts? Maybe I'll start with actually Michael since you've got to go first. And then I'll toss it over to Philip. Uh, Michael, do you have any thoughts uh, to close out the show? Oh, well, you know, I, th I think the driving force here is to talk about unity. I hate that. It just feels like so many things that, that, uh, that God gives us for the sake of unity, we divide over like communion. Like there is one body, uh, first Corinthians 10. Well, what do we do? We divide over it. Uh, baptism, there's one baptism. What do we do? We divide over baptism. And then this creed that was unifying for the church for centuries became a dividing point. Satan's so good at dividing us. And uh, on Wednesday, we're going to do a show with Francis Chan. It'll be a little different. Usually we do a, a, a spiritual gifts talk with the guys on Wednesdays, but we're going to do a, a conversation with Francis Chan on his book, Until Unity. And, and that's what this conversation is really about. What is it that in its essence unifies us? And uh, Phil, I just uh, appreciated what you said, that we should really, really strive toward unity. And we should actually be grieved over disunity. And, and I think just what would it look like if we just felt a trembling fear of God before we divided with other saints? And, uh, right. and, so, and that's part of what Remnant Radio is trying to do by interviewing people with, uh, such a wide, from such a wide variety of uh, the body of Christ. And uh, Phil, you come from uh, your Anglican. Josh slants a little Anglican, sometimes Lutheran. Josh, we don't even know what you are. Uh, I'm on the more reformed side. We're all, uh, you know, we're charismatic. So uh, anyway, we just we try to interview people from all different camps. And, that, and that's the reason we're trying to just say, you know what? We, we actually are all the body of Christ and we can learn from each other. So I think that would be my big takeaway. Uh, Phil, what would you want us to take away on uh, on this creed conversation? I'd like to say um, any Nicene Christian is a friend of mine. Um, now, a lot of people who don't recite the Nicene Creed still have the Nicene faith because they, they worship Jesus as Lord. And if you do that, um, then the Nicene Creed is your friend. Um, and it's a friend. You've got lots of friends that you, you don't maybe don't know about and you should get to know them because it's good to have these friends uh, who know the Nicene Creed. And every Nicene Christian is a friend of mine and, and really is a friend of yours, too. Um, and, and it's a friendship based on the best news in the world, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is summarized in the creed. Right? Uh, the, the Nicene Creed is a summary of the one faith uh, that we all share. And it's, it's really, really good news because for us and for our salvation, as the creed says, for us and for our salvation, he came and he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He's coming again in glory and his kingdom will have no end. This Amen. is good news that is worth singing over and over and over again. And anyone who's happy to sing it is, is my friend. Amen. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Uh, Philip, thank you so much for coming on the show. I uh, look forward to reading more of your content and maybe having you back on. I'm, I'm excited about all that. Hey, uh, hey Josh, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Oh. Yeah, I've that's I have unique. a good uh, a good question for a Patreon follow up. You guys check out we'll that see. Patreon, maybe, okay? Uh, maybe try that out. But uh, a good question because this is something that we don't have time for for this episode. But I hear people say when you say every you know every Nicene Christian is a friend of mine, and, and you're trying to say we're part of the same spiritual family. 
uh, I what I hear some people doing today is they're creating a or they're committing moral heresy. Okay, they're they're redefining mm. human sexuality and they're saying, yeah, but I recite the Nicene Creed, so I can sanctify sin and live as I please. And um, now they. I also recite like the that. Sparkle Creed. Yeah, the Sparkle oh. Creed, right? So, Josh, yeah. I think that. I think yeah. that might be a good that's, follow up for I'm Patreon. Gonna, I'm gonna hear your thoughts on the Sparkle Creed. That's literally I can see the thumbnail right now. I'm just like throwing sparkles up and you're giving comments. Grown. I can't Oh my goodness. Not the Nicene Creed. No, I couldn't finish it. Honestly, I started listening to it and I was like, this is so grievance. I'm like, I couldn't finish it. Um yep. I, I've not even heard it all. Anyway, you're right, anyway. Michael. That's a good that's a good follow up, guys. Uh, if you're interested in checking that out, uh, check out the links in the description for Patreon. Be a good place to go check out that content. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in this episode, and we'll see you next Monday and Wednesday from four five p.m. Central Standard Time. Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.